0: to the great work radio program the great work radio and blog are features of jesse war's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. that's j-e-s-s-e-w-a-u-g-h.com we look forward to comments submitted to the blog
1: and hope you enjoy today's program this is episode 8 of the charming intentions series on the great work Hello, and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and Renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking, and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Marta Kretschmar of the Hamburg Technical University gave a very interesting talk entitled Waxwork, Abby Warburg's Bildzauber Between Materiality and Resemblance.
2: Uh, I'm pleased to introduce our, our next speaker, who is Marta Kretschmar from the Technische University in Hamburg, um, who's going to be speaking to us on uh, waxwork, Abdi Warburg's Bildtauber, Between Materiality and Resonance. Welcome. Yeah.
3: So, thank you very much for the introduction and for inviting me to this very interesting conference. I'm very glad to be here and have the opportunity to ask you a question. This question occurred to me during my work on the doctoral <coughs> Thesis. I dealt with life-size waxen portraits of political rulers during the, uh, in the Kunst und Wunderkammern during the 17th and 18th centuries. And my focus was on the effect of an illusion <coughs> of presence and aspects of political representation. But I wonder more and more about the iconological quality of this puzzling Reality. So I um, first, they will give you a short introduction into the topic of Rex works, and then give a, or try to give a more precise definition of the categories I am dealing with. And in the last step, I will introduce the idea of Bildzauber, image magic, and ask for its relevance in this special case. In 1699, the Russian ambassador Andrei Medfeev reported his visit of the Schloss in Berlin. In his description of the courtly Kunstkammer, he mentioned the encounter between his translator Peter Wolff and the life-size waxwork of Frederick III, the Elector of Brandenburg, ruling at that time. I will give you my English translation of the German version of the text. A replication. Of the elector himself is made of wax, sitting in a chair, very similar, dressed in purple <coughs> print French drapery in a golden embroidered camisole, equipped with all its proper decoration, an ep, the hat under his arm, and so lively that the translator Peter Wolff <coughs> greeted the replication when he entered the room, probably because he thought it was the elector himself. End of the quote. So you see oh okay. you see the photograph of this, this very <laughs> figure as it was presented not in the Kunstkammer in Berlin but during the 19th century and uh, still at the beginning of the 20th century in the Hohenzoller Museum in Schloss montbijou in Berlin before it was destroyed during the Second World War so the figure is lost today but we still have the photo The second example moves us to Kassel. The Hessian landgrave Moritz received an offer by an art dealer in 1603. The offering included a waxen portrait figure of the landgrave with a wig made of real hair in daily clothing or armour. The agent suggested Moritz to place the statue in a chamber in order to provide a visual surprise to foreign visitors. So people had to assume that, I say it in German, Iro furstliche Gnaden leibhaftig all da stünden." So to assume that it is the Landgraf himself in the flesh who is standing in the chamber. And you see um, a life-size waxen portraiture of the Landgraf Moritz that was probably made during the first quarter of the 17th century. It, it's, um, there has been a corporal structure, but the structures lost and we still have this waxen hat um, but this hat is not identical with the mentioned wax portrait in the offer because this is a hollow cast and uh, with waxen hairstyle. and the offer informs us of a wig and of a wooden core that, the, um, that had to be covered with a waxen layer. It seems to be that the mentioned work was not bought by the Hessian landgrave because we can't find it in the fixtures of the collection. Now, we're moving to the last example, and have a look at Italy. (coughs) Filippo Baldinucci, the Italian art historian and biographer, wrote in his Notizia, this is a compendium of the lives of famous Italian artists published around 1700, about the architect and sculptor Pietro Tacca as a wax worker. According to Baldinucci, Tacca loved to make pictures made of painted wax. Sometimes he shaped life-sized portraits after the living model. We know of his his portrait of the grand duke, Cosimo II de Medici. He gave the waxwork real eyelashes, a beard, real hair, and eyes made of a crystal that corresponds with the eye color of Cosimo's eyes. Baldinucci emphasized that the image resembled the real person. To give the evidence of its perfection, he tells a story that happens after Cosimo's death. The Grand Duke's mother, Christina of Lorraine, visited Tucker at his home where the portrait apparently was kept. She gave him the order to remove the waxen portrait of her son because her heart could not bear to see the beloved son who had died so young in such a lively but dumb and mute manner. And I just can give you a uh, a bust made of plaster because the waxen uh, bust is lost. In my talk, I can just share with you these um, three examples to give a short insight of the huge variety of the phenomenon of wax portraiture in the early modern era. These artifacts may have been disappeared from the museums. Although Um, Most of these works are lost today, you can partly reconstruct their existence in the Kunstkammern and residences with the help of fixtures, travel reports, bills or written offers, as we have seen in Kassel. Natural-sized wax portraits were were special rarities of the court collections. As curious attractions, they should amuse the visitors and raise their attention. But at the same time, there were official representations of a living sovereign. The still conserved and very impressive waxworks of Louis XIV that still exist in Versailles Castle. Or the figure of Tsar Peter the Great you can see in the Eremitage in St. Petersburg. or the portraits of the Danish royal couple, Frederick III and Sophie Amalia (coughs) at Rosenberg Castle (coughs) in Copenhagen, can give an idea of their serious (coughs) character. And in my doctorate thesis, I followed this official aspect and quality. The life-sized wax figure evoked a short moment of shock on the side of the beholder, raised his full attention and created an atmosphere of presence of the absent person that is depicted. This is a topos in in art theory and especially in the portrait theory, but only the waxwork can make the beholder imagine he is really standing face to face with a a depicted person. In some cases, as we have seen, the beholder even reacts as if he would do in front of the real person, for example to greet it like the ambassador or the translator of the ambassador in Berlin did who we met at the beginning of the talk. When I discussed this topic with others very often questions arose referring to concrete substitution and magical connotations of this puzzling materiality or figures. Why should one choose and ephemeral material for continuous representation, the effect of resemblance and the illusion of physical and corporeal presence was, were obviously of more importance than the durability of the image. In balancing a long duration on the one side and the quality of resemblance on the other, the similitude and evocation of presence were preferred and the vulnerability and trend signs of the materiality was accepted. In his study, The Power of Images, David Friedberg formulated the striving for resemblance, as he calls it, and the wish to produce someone or something again as the underlying drives for making these images. Amongst other arguments, Friedberg based his assum- this assumption on the play Alcestics by Euripides. Admetus, the king of Thessaly, says to Alcestis, Alcestis His dying wife, I would quote, (coughs) represented by the skillful hands of a craftsman, your body will be stretched out in the bed, and I shall fall down beside it and throw my arms around it. Call your name and think I hold my dear wife in my arms, even though I do not hold her. End of the quotation. So in these lines Friedberg saw a correlation between resemblance and efficiency. I will quote his argumentation if the solace Admetus seeks could be provided by a mere symbol of, say, one or more of his wife's qualities, then he would not need to speak of the skillful craftsman. So this I think is a very strong argument, but I agree with his following point. I continue to uh, I continue quoting. But he, he, Admetus, wants to embrace an image that reproduces her as she was, as if she were alive. The only substitute for the dead in instances like this is resemblance to the living. When Admetus embraces the skillfully wrought image, he can imagine her there. End of the quote. So, Admetus does not seek for something that symbolizes the former existence or nature of his wife, a ringlet or a silhouette, for example. He desires her full corporeal presence. The corporeal substitute evokes the desired emotional and sentimental reaction, although he knows it is just the illusion of her presence. Friedberg explains the Wexford <coughs> and its operas striving for resemblance with emotive (coughs) and sentimental categories. Death and life can be connected and bridged by images, and indeed waxen figures and death masks did play an enormous role in funeral traditions, but this could not be the topic. Here I can just show you this antique waxen full, full face mask of a young man that was found in a grave near Naples. Oh, this is um, this is from the um, antique Roman um um Kaiserzeit <laughs> time of 1st um, oh, like
4: century.
3: century. So, um, yes. Yeah. So, so it's an early imperial. Yeah. Oh, that's um my interest lies in the aspect of magical components, magical components in the correlation between resemblance and materiality. Friedberg thought this aspect, magic, was not needed to explain the powerful effect on the beholder. Admetus admits that the image of his dead wife is just illusion. The artist who, who has figured in corporeal <coughs> substitute was not <coughs> a demiurge or a second god or something like that. He was a skillful craftsman. For Friedberg, only the resemblance to a lost or absent beloved person, a friend, a lover, the mother of Cosimo, the second, the Medici, and so on, enabled the portrait to function so successfully. The emotional binding of the beholder causes its power. Dealing with life-sized wax figures is not only a question of form, in between the epistemic bipolarity of absence and presence, or just a question of the action of the beholder, <coughs> it is also a question of the materiality of these images. I wonder about the iconological role and connotation of works in this context, and this is the open question. How could the aspect of the material be strengthened in the analysis of uh, this special portrait genre? Is it possible that these waxen portraits in the Kunstkammer had a kind of binding power through their cons- consistence beyond the emotional effect and compensational function in psychologically or socially weak situations of mourning or desiring? The Kunstkammer, and chamber of curiosity, is a vital and emboldened place full of objects taken from life, testifying the wonder of creation. And wax was not used only for refugees or death masks in funeral rites, but also as a healing substance and medicine in ointments or for (coughs) clothing. It played an important role for magical practices as melted elixir, as nuggets, or figured in amulets or as little puppets for harmful spells, for helping charms. It was thrown in water pots for predictions and so on. We know that from various sources since antique times, for, for example by Vir- Virgil or Reis, Ovid, or, or to mention an example in the early modern era, by Paracelsus for the med- medicine sector and many more. It was and still is an important material in religious practices and rites for sacrificial offerings. In our day, we still know the symbolic meaning of the candles, as a light, but also as a material donation in churches, as baptism and Easter candle during the Advent or Christmas time, Christmas season, for example. Here, wax received its valuation as a product of bees, of the bees. Bees were venerated in their conduct of life that was considered to be a Christian role model. Wax was a common but precious and meaningful material in lots of different practices of special interests. So firstly, the life size <coughs> medicine portrait is the most resembling portrait type due to the ability of wax to imitate the human epidermis in a very natural way, and therefore evoke strong emotional and affective reactions. And secondly, wax is iconologically connoted and semantically loaded with mo- uh, metamorphic vitality, magical power and religious spirituality. I wonder how to get these two fields together. Um, A correlation between (laughs) resemblance and materiality can be found in the very inspiring and profound essay Portraiture and Florentine Citizenship, Avi Warburg, published in 1902. Warburg's study remains until today a touchstone and starting point for research in the field of waxwork. (laughs) He had discovered the flourishing votive tradition, as you can maybe see here, some votive figures (laughs) at the um, the wall. He discovered the waxen votive figure for studies of art and cultural history and connected it with the Florentine culture and portrait tradition during the Renaissance. In his essay, he compared the quite self-confident portraits of Francesco Sassetti and his family and friends in the Sassetti Chapel in Santa Trinita, in Florence, and the life-size votive figures that were presented in the Tilder March Church, Santissima Annunziata in Florence at the same time. So you see here, in the front, these self-confident portraits. (laughs) And all the votive figures in Santissima Annunziata are lost today, so I can just give you this um, this picture of votive figures in Santa Maria del Grazie near Mantua. Mantua. And these votive um, figures are still there today. Barber claimed that in contrast with these presumptuous puppets or dummies, the just painted portraits in the society chapel, seems to be a relatively discreet approach to the divine. In general, motif figures were donated in thanks after a survived threat or disease or after a fulfilled wish. This was a popular custom, not only in Florence, but in lots of European pilgrimage churches. The motif essentially is a donation of the material. The form basically is the, indicate, the indicator of the occasion. So you have um, I hope you can see this wax in hand. Uh, and this is a sign for the healing of a hand disease, for example, or you can see motifs uh, made of other materials like metal, plaquettes, and you have here these uh, eyes eye forms, this is the signal for the healing of our eye disease and so, on. so it's a very simple system. Privileged people were able to donate a waxen figure in their own weight and size met, marked with their own facial characteristics and vested with original clothes of the votant. For example, Giorgio Vasari mentioned three fi- votive figures of Lorenzo de' Medici, who survived an assassination in 1478. One figure was vested with the clothes clothes of, clothes Lorenzo wore, had worn at the moment of the assassination. It was brought to a church in Via San Gallo. A second figure wore a robe <coughs> that signified him as citizen of Florence. It was presented in Santissima Annunziata and the last figure was sent to Maria degli Angeli in Assisi. So, here we have a clear correlation between resemblance and materiality. The Motive is a donation of the material, the form basically is the indicator of the special occasion. But totally resemblance is not necessary for the spiritual act, As we have seen, fragments and symbols also work. In general, Warburg was interested in the function of the image as mediator or messenger between human being and the divinity. Images were and still are comprehensive forms to converge, as he calls it, comprehensive forms, to converge or to (coughs) participate with the divine. In the European votive tradition, Abi Warburg saw a basic and ineradicable religious human instinct to get closer with God. For Warburg, the votive cult is Bildzauber, image magic. It is an expression of the belief of the effectiveness of special images. Is it possible that the profane (coughs) waxwork in principle shared the binding quality of the votive figures? Is it possible to transfer the principles of votive custom in the political context? I don't have the answer. So let me finish my talk with uh, some concluding thoughts. The term Bildzhaber at this point of the discourse indicates a lack of terminology for interdependencies between man image, images and non-literal contents or meaning or effect. David Friedberg tried to solve this problem by shifting on a psychological level of explanation. Recent studies, recent German studies, I think, for example by Horst Pedekamp, deepen the concept relating to the formal aspects and historical contexts of images which were used as living or living <coughs> substitutes. For example, in the enforcement of sentences when convicted people were punished by, the, by punishing their simulacrum. But I think these are methodological decisions which can lighten only some rational aspects of the web's work. To comprehend this phenomenon, you have to consider the, the semantic dimension um, of its materiality and not only focus on the form, or deal with its astonishing and powerful effects. Robert's term, Bildzaber, can just be the first step to explain the non-rational aspects of these artifacts. But the further advancement in this field of research is an open question. At least it is an open question for me, so I'm looking forward to any helping suggestion and comment. And thank you very much for your attention.
2: very much, uh, Martin, for a very interesting talk. I'm going to take the Chair's privilege and ask the first question, if I, I may. I appreciated the way that you placed waxworks in, in multiple contexts, but there's, there's one additional context which surely is, is significant, at least for the earlier waxworks, up to about 1650, and that's Aristotelian understanding of, um, of the relationship between form and matter, which is, of course, described as uh, an impression in wax. Mm-hmm. So, 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 wax is, as a, the, 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 the most obvious uh, you know, turpos. For understanding wax in the early modern period is an Aristotelian one, and I just wonder what you think about that in relation to the the, the Kunstkammer in particular, which is often mm-hmm. you know, uh, an expression of other Aristotelian notions. Mm-hmm. So
3: this is a part I I <coughs> strengthened in my doctorate thesis because in the Aristotelian and Platonic thinking wax is the material for um, memory to. Uh, like a seagull. A, um, a seagull. <laughs> this That's process. The, yeah, yeah. And um, I argument that these figures <coughs> these cover, um, have to to raise the attention of the of the beholder, of the wizard, visitor of these residences, and stay in memory. This is the, the main uh, function of these figures. But um, I think this is. Oh, this could be only one, one aspect of the answer. Thank you for
5: these fascinating and creepy images. Um, Alfred Gell, or Gell, whose name I always mispronounce, has a very interesting theory um, about the idea of technology and enchantment, and the idea that objects might, especially in an anthropological context where they're not figurative, um, have a sort of power because of. The technology takes to build or create them, and I think you touched on this in your materiality section. <coughs> I'm wondering to what degree your idea of Vidsaba might have to do with this argument.
3: Could you repeat the argument, please? <laughs> I'm
5: sorry, that was a bit confused. Um, there's this idea um, that an anthropologist and art historian has proposed about the idea of the technology of enchantment, that in some ways, um, Technology is itself enchanting, rather than art. Like that is the process that it took to make this this creepy collector. Is in fact what draws us into him. The complexity of it, and not so much the art itself. The the idea of the technology behind the material.
3: Well, I think the idea of Warburg's bitsaber is not very uh, not very sophisticated concept. You just want to express or find a term of this. Um, moment, uh, this effect of being, uh, expressing a wish or something, like that. I don't know, I, I don't get your question, I think. Um, it's not connected with a question of te- techn- special technology or some object, it's just the, the acting of, of giving something in order to receive something from a, from a divinity. Yeah,
4: maybe um, you know really talk about the after, but right? it's sort of like a blah or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is just a suggestion actually, since we were talking <laughs> yesterday <laughs> on the gotcha. work. There is uh, a book that's been published just uh, maybe a couple of months ago or this year, you I know, mean, by Donald Preziosi and Claire Farrago. And as you know, uh, he works in modern and she works in early modern. And I cannot remember the title of the book. But she talks about the ex-votos and the process of wax. And she discusses it in in the context of indexicality, of Pierce's indexicality. So I thought that that might be something perhaps to also look at in case it might add um, a different dimension in thinking about. How these images might transfer from the ex-voto sort of um, approach to the political mm-hmm. arena. You know, That's so that, a question. yeah, just a, a suggestion. Nothing. Thank
3: you. Nothing else. Petition, Yeah, yeah. Petzoldi and Claire Farrell. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes, at the back of I'm wondering whether. Do you know there is any evidence that these persons uh, have do- uh, donated any, any ex-votos? Or did they practice this thing? Or is
4: there any
3: evidence when they were connected to this? Or, uh, I think uh, the elector of Brandenburg was a Protestant. And this is a, one of uh, the next problem I, I see to transfer this votive tradition to political context. As a Protestant, I don't know if there is any motive? part, no, not at all, no. and so it's, it's not. <laughs> it opens the, the next uh, floor uh, of <coughs> field. Thank you for an interesting talk, and um, I'm absolutely no expert, but I think, remember that some dead mass had some magic power and um, did some wonder, some healing or something Maybe it had been the dead mass of Santa Caterina of Bologna. And um, if it might be possible that the Sorens knew these aspects of dead mass, the working dead mass, and may have a little thought about maybe also sculpture of the works, maybe do some work, I don't know. But it's a good point, because course, is this kind of profane uh, waxwork um, develops out of, fu- out of the funeral tradition. And it could be maybe <laughs> that there is the, the old connotation of magic, magical thinking um, from the death mask and it's get uh, on these kind of figures. But I don't know. I, I have a problem with the, the sources. There are no written sources about it. <coughs> I think you might know the, the book, The Study of Otto <coughs> <coughs> I I think you would that. And um, if there's any example of a dead mass doing some wonderful display this again I'm sorry, sorry just one, one
2: last question.
4: Um I think there might be a line here in Christian theology about the necessity for the body to survive after death. Because um, this is something we all forget, that we're all supposed to be resurrecting at the end of time physically, not just spiritually. This is a very embarrassing aspect of church doctrine. But you, they, they, they were very, very careful, of course. Uh, they were very worried at this time. What would happen to bodies that had been devoured by fish and were now in bits? Or, you know, were lost somewhere at sea and maybe could never rise. Would that person be able to resurrect? Because at the end of time, you had to get your physical body back again. It's something that um, Christianity inherited from Judaic tradition. And you can find those passages in Isaiah about the resurrection of the body. So, in some sort of way, this might be related to this anxiety about resurrection as well, that you had to have a perfect body somewhere, even if it's only a simulacrum or an index, that was a really good point that was made there, would be indexically related Mm -hmm. to you, just in case your own body didn't survive. I mean, they went to extraordinary lengths to kind of keep the body. If you died somewhere, the Germans would want to do this, <coughs> far away, say, from Germany. Mm. They would boil boil your body up, get rid of the flesh, and bring your bones back again. Or they'd pickle you, mm. and bring you back hundreds and hundreds of miles, pickled in brandy, so that they could keep the entire body. Because <coughs> this would be sort of like a spare body, so you could resurrect. So it's the wish to stay on earth. Yes. <laughs> but I think that yeah. more of a Catholic
5: crusade. Yeah. I don't know that, really, like, a German Protestant in this period, you know. And the problem with that is, because
2: course, he has pointed it out, it's highly of material. So, if, you know, it's, it's not a very stable material. So if you want to have something that's going to last, or the last trunk, wax probably isn't the material. But it's
4: the next closest thing to flesh, because it is an organic material. And it is flesh-like, if you can, Give it a resemblance much more so than in bronze or in stone, which are not organic and are not fleshly. I mean, wax is is fleshly, and this is Christian doctrine right to the present day in the Anglican Church and in the Lutheran Church and in the Calvinist Church. Mm -hmm. And in England, you are not allowed to be cremated until the early 20th century because it would destroy your body and you could not resurrect. So it transcends the Catholic-Protestant divide because it's a central part. This is what Christ died for so that everybody could physically resurrect.
2: Okay, I think uh, we have to go through for a coffee. Let's thank our mm-hmm. two steams again for one second.
0: Thank you for listening to the Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Search for the name Jesse Waugh to download the great work radio programs from the iTunes store.